I lost your audio there. Oh, did you? How about now? Yeah, that's better. Okay, weird. All right, and we are live. How about now? Yeah, that's better. Compulsory artery check. Welcome, everybody, to the Average Intelligence Podcast. I'm joined once again by our friend Cody, the unlicensed thinker, because Eric is still being a dirty capitalist pig. And that is ironically ties into what we're talking about tonight. So we are going to, everybody knows that there is once again strife in Cuba, which lends itself to the title of this particular podcast. Cuba Libre Otra Vez, because they are once again calling for freedom and the end of communism, and we will see what happens there. But uh, first thing I want to address is the nonsensical, which we were talking about this just before we went live, the nonsensical headlines saying that the Cubans are, the Cuban citizens are protesting specifically the trade embargo and COVID. Right. Which does not ring true um, after seeing videos of them shouting uh, Libertad and um, waving American flags. Yeah, you would think that Democrat, at least some Democrats would speak Spanish. Yeah. And I mean, even before getting into that, that really does. Um, it's very disturbing how much the media these days is really just kind of running cover and acting as the propaganda wing of our government. And it's very disturbing to think that we're informed of that. We can see that happening, but most people are not seeing what's going on there for real. They're just hearing, oh yeah, they're mad about um, COVID and they're mad at us for not sending enough food. And this is um, very 1984 in a lot of ways. Yeah, I kind of find it hard to believe that a communist regime would, well, not openly accept, because of course they would accept behind closed doors uh, anything from a dirty capitalist society, you know, but they're, they're just, that's not what they're protesting. It's not. And there are plenty of Cuban Americans that are more than happy to tell you what their relatives in Cuba are telling them. Things that are happening on the ground, people that have been to Cuba, people who came from Cuba, people who risked their lives to get away from Cuba. But because they came to the United States and then may or may not have voted for Donald Trump or any other Republican office holder, they are now uh, people whose opinion is not worth hearing. Because yeah, Actually, you make a really good point there. Um about just what's happening. It's like they're they're making it very clear from our current administration that if you're if you're someone in Cuba, don't come to the US. At the same time as they're opening up the Mexican border as much as possible. Like, well that's kind of strange. Why well, why they would changed, they they changed they changed their tune on that one because when Kamala Harris was down in Guatemala, she actually said to a crowd of people on live television that, but keep in mind that the, the hilarity of this knows no bounds because you're right on the campaign trail, they were talking nonstop about, well, what if people are seeking asylum, this, that, and the other, and we should just let people in. And it was more nuanced than that, but not much. Um, mm -hmm. But when she was in Guatemala, she literally told people, and I, I believe this is the direct quote, but she said, if you're thinking about making the long dangerous journey to the, U.S.-Mexico border, do not come. 
because now that they are in charge of it, they understand what a cluster yeah. the U.S.-Mexico border is. And I find this extremely ironic because if you remember way back during the, uh, the well, not because I think the Syrian civil war is still going on, but look how quickly the news media forgot about that one. Um, there was outcry because the United States agreed to take less refugees than many people thought was appropriate, I guess. Mm-hmm. And part of that was the fact that we wanted to make sure that we being the United States government wanted to make sure that the vetting process for suspected terrorism, su- suspected terrorists was up to snuff. And in order to do that, we had to limit the number of people in at a certain time interval. And the Democrats, this extremely liberal Democrats were all up in arms about that, saying it wasn't good enough. And now the same party that was crying foul when that was happening is now saying no to Cuban refugees, at least publicly. And I think that's a combination of the fact that statistically, I'm not lumping all Cuban people or people of Cuban descent into the same box like the Democratic Party does. But statistically, from what I've read, it seems that Cubans who come to the United States from Cuba, particularly first generation, and probably the generation after that, tend to vote more conservative. I'm not even going to say Republican, um, but they do tend to vote more conservative in their local, state, and federal elections. The Democrats don't want that. They want people that are going to vote liberal. Well, funny thing happens when people come from communist regimes they tend to not vote for the parties that espouse communist talking points or socialist talking points mm-hmm. or really any people that say that they want more government. They tend to shy away from those places, which we can yeah. get into somebody else. Cause you mentioned you were listening to her and I'm a big fan of her. John me park. Mm-hmm. So now that she's spoken out and not even outright support of Trump, but she has talked glowingly about Jordan Peterson um, lately, lately being within the last few months. And she was not condemning Trump the way I guess people thought she would, which somebody like Yanni Park, I wouldn't suspect would really be all that critical of Donald Trump and, and for nothing else based on policy. But now she's uh, becoming a bit of a victim of the radical left. You know, now they're, calling into question details of her story, saying that she's lying or exaggerating about how it is in North Korea, which is hysterical because these are people who have never been to North Korea. (laughs) And if they had been to North Korea, they wouldn't have been allowed to see the real North Korea. Right. They would have been kept in Pyongyang. And from what I've seen, and this is limited to videos and what I've read, Pyongyang isn't really all that bad, at least what they let you see of it. But Pyongyang is where the highest party officials tend to live. It's a fairly affluent area. It does not represent North Korea as a society. It's kind of like saying that New York City represents all of the United States. That's ridiculous. Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Yuri Bezmianov, uh, he has a similar story about when they would bring people to the Soviet Union. They would show them these like just um, total BS uh, scenarios, towns, whatever they might be. And some of them were even, they were showing them how great their schools were. 
And it turns out they weren't schools, they were prison camps for the children of political prisoners. They just dressed them up to look really nice and said, you better behave and not tell them. And so that seems to be a common theme that uh, people are getting this, this wonderful view of communism and look how happy everyone is and look uh, how well off they are. And that is completely not the true story. Not even, not even close. And this whole ordeal really got me wondering because I do try, sometimes it can come across, particularly if you only watch the podcast and you don't know me or converse with me outside of this, you know, limited scope, it can really seem that I am like 100% like evil capitalist, like capitalism can do no wrong, uh, representative democracy can do no wrong and that capitalism is i mean not capitalism communism is pure evil which i mean that's true but i can go into why that's to me that's not a hyperbolic talking point i actually do believe that the essence of communism is evil because even the crux of communism in and of itself is unjust in my opinion but i did really start to dig because i didn't want to go into this discussion being like, yeah, communism's garbage, blah, 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 blah. I wanted to actually see, you know, maybe there is something to communism. I know that communism as it's been practiced thus far has not worked, but maybe pure communism has something to it. And I will be the, I'll admit I've not read the Communist Manifesto in its entirety, although I do plan to, but as far as tonight, I have not read it all, but I have a kind of like passing understanding of what Karl Marx was trying to get at and who he was. And I'm going to bring this up again, bring up one of my favorite terms, Zitzenleben, situation in life. So when you're talking about pure communism or pure Marxism, I guess is a more appropriate term, but Marx called it communism, is you have to understand where the world was at when he wrote the Communist Manifesto. A lot of the world, particularly Europe, was still largely, at least to a certain extent, still under autocratic rule. And this includes Russia. This includes, um, I don't even know if Germany is a valid, I'm going to say Germany just for simplicity's sake, but I don't even know if that's really a valid classification because the nation of Germany, as we know it, didn't really exist as we know it yet. Uh, France had just gone through, in very recent memory, an extremely violent and troublesome revolution, and then Napoleon happened. So while it may not have been considered a pure monarchy, there's no denying that Napoleon was an autocrat, if ever there was one. The United Kingdom was still a constitutional monarchy, but a monarchy nonetheless, nonetheless. And I believe, and this one I'm not sure of, I believe Spain was still a monarchy? I can't remember. I honestly can't remember. But most of Europe was autocratic. And, and then Russia had the czar. So definitely still autocratic. And I would probably make the case that pure unfettered capitalism outside of the United States really hadn't been done in a grand scale yet. Because to a certain extent, particularly in Europe, all of the business still somewhat was dependent on the head of state to regulate, or in this case, probably soften. Now, there were capitalists and business owners and merchants, obviously, but again, that kind of pure unfettered capitalism where you could be born 
a popper and through your own action knowledge and you know a, with a little bit of luck too you could rise to become one of the richest men in the country if not the world i think that really only existed in the united states at the time and it, that could just be my opinion but the way i see it karl marx was really more arguing against autocratic rule and a misunderstanding of a misunderstanding of what capitalism could be there almost seems to be in the way he describes capitalism and by his own admission capitalism has to happen before pure communism can happen because it's a logical step he simply uh, called for violent revolution to lead to the communist society but I believe that call for violent revolution was more so kind of striking back against the autocrats more so than the capitalists, or at least that's what he was, that's what he was really going for. At least that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, he certainly lived, <clears throat> excuse me. He certainly lived in a different time and um, it's, one of the big things is that there needs to be a revolution. I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time with my throat. One second. No, you're good. Yeah, that idea that there needs to be a revolution, that there needs to be blood, that you need to separate the people into this class and that class, which, by the way, we're seeing a lot of today. How many ways can we separate people? Um, but... It, it just seems to me that anything that you need to bring about or enforce via violence, such as a revolution, it may be something that's not a good idea. Like revolutions have done wonderful things. <clears throat> I think we experienced that here in the U.S. Um, but generally, if you have to force your whatever your ideology is upon somebody, it it's probably not a good idea. Like if you can't talk them into it, but again, that may be just because we live in a different world that I'm able to think that way. So because we don't live in some kind of autocratic society, I'm able to say, Hey, let's talk it out instead of, I need to kill that guy in order to get my freedom. Right. And you bring up a point that, I mean, you bring up a very good point, but then at the same time, you know, somebody had to think it up at some point during the Enlightenment. Some groups of people started figuring out that, you know, maybe maybe the way the world is, maybe the way God made the world, whereas, you know, his representative on Earth is the king and we should do fall in line for the king. Maybe that's not the best way to run a society. So it had to start somewhere. And. That goes into, even to this day, I don't think, certainly Americans don't understand how truly different the United States is compared to even other free countries around the world, because there is a fundamental difference in the freedom that's recognized in the United States versus the freedom even recognized in other free nations, such as Canada, basically countries in Europe. There are many, many free countries in the world today but I still maintain that the United States is, is different in one key aspect, and that is that our founding documents postulate and preach that the rights of man are not given to them by the state. They have these rights. They are inalienable, to quote uh, the founding documents. And it is government's responsibility and role to protect those rights, including to but not only from the government itself. 
also to protect the people's rights from outside forces should they seek to uh, usurp those rights. And there are many other countries, and I would wager to say all of them, even the freest of the free, that even their citizens would say, and I know this for a fact for Canadians, uh, their rights come from the government. And when your rights and your resources come from the government, the government can take them away. Right. In the United States, my, the government My recent video. <laughs> yeah, you, you were talking about the immune system. In the United States, at least as of right now, the government cannot take your rights away without due process, meaning you have to commit you have to commit a crime, be tried and convicted for any of your rights to be taken away. Mm -hmm. And even then, depending on the crime, that is temporary. Now, some of your rights stay taken away depending on the severity of the crime. But the point is, is that your rights as an American cannot be unjustly taken away. And it's a very, very serious deal to have those rights taken away. And I don't, I, I think we take it for granted because we live here, we live it every day. And then plus the media doesn't talk that way anymore. You know, when COVID was coming out, there was a lot of talk of, um, some people were, and I would say falsely saying that being forced to wear a mask was a violation of their constitutional rights. And I mean, not really, but at least the conversation was being had. So that was one of the good things about COVID. Unfortunately, some of the people were wrong, but at least the conversation was being had. Everywhere else in the world, there seemed to be a lot less resistance to the the idea of being forced to not go to work, to be forced to cover your face, to be forced to basically stay home. But it sure got militant in certain parts of the United States, which on the one hand, I was kind of happy about because I was afraid that the entire country was just kind of going to fall in line. And I'm really glad that it didn't, because I think there's this, certainly on the side of the Democrats, I think there's this belief, at least in their leadership, that the country will just fall in line with whatever the government says. And that's pretty evident in the way they argue some of their points, because many, even high profile Democrats get very frustrated when they're saying, oh, yeah, we should do this and this. Uh, yeah, so we're going to do that. And then somebody's just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But they can't really argue their point. And even if they could, it's like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And you can't make me do that, i.e. getting a COVID vaccine. So what level of um, control, as far as something like a mask, do you think the U.S. should have? Like if something comes out, I mean, then, of course, we get into who decides how serious the situation is. And like, you know, my doctor might say, hey, don't the masks are bad for you. Don't wear them. It's you know, it's not healthy for you to have it on for a long time. Another doctor, doctor might, might say, say well, well, masks will protect, protect you and they'll protect, protect other people. And then, of course, we learn that masks don't really do a whole lot. Like we just breathe in and out of it. Um, like the whole droplet idea, um, I'm kind of going off on a rant here, I'm sorry. Um, but like the whole droplet idea is sort of stupid because that's not really where the problem is. The problem is the air that you're constantly breathing in and out, which goes right through pretty much every mask that we would wear. Uh, the only masks that would prevent that are N95 masks, which are generally vented masks. So they protect the wearer, but not anyone um, anyone else because you just blow the air right out of the vent. 
So it comes to, well, who decides how serious the situation is and who decides um, the fix for it? And then how much power do we give them based upon what they've decided? So like, can we force people to wear masks or should we be able to, as far as the U.S. goes? So this is actually where Donald Trump, this is an area where Donald Trump does not get enough credit because, and again, when you're talking about the United States, you have to separate whether you're talking about the federal government or your state or local government. And the fact of the matter is, at least, again, I'm not a lawyer, but as far as I've been told by, you know, people in the legal profession that I know and or listen to, the federal government cannot mandate outside of a massive state of emergency, which COVID, I don't think even qualifies. It would have to be a massively bad, like an Ebola outbreak, I could probably see. Um, but Trump never actually, and Biden hasn't either. Biden mandated masks be worn on federal property, which is actually the extent of the power that he has at the moment. Mm -hmm. Congress could vote to give him more, but that would require a vote from Congress or... Uh, what would probably happen, honestly, if there was an Ebola outbreak is, and it, it, like if there was an Ebola outbreak tomorrow, let's say, Biden would probably get on TV and Im impose in words only a mask mandate. But I think that most people would be sensible enough to, if a mask was actually useful against Ebola, and frankly, an Ebola, if there's even a hint that a mask is going to help me live, I'm going to put on a mask. Like we're talking about Ebola here. We're not talking about COVID. But Biden technically tomorrow would not be able to mandate that every American wear a mask. Now, this is where it gets tricky because state and municipalities all have different laws, but most states have the ability to have some sort of mask mandate. We saw this in, uh, in well, in Indiana, for example, the governor uh, ordered the lockdown and had a mask mandate for a very, very long time. But then you have a question of enforcement and the way they did this was so utterly stupid. So they had a mask mandate, but basically the governor chalked it down to the counties for enforcement. And most counties, I know for a fact that um, Hamilton County, where I work, they basically put enforcement on the Department of Health. But the health department base, they came out and said, we don't have the resources or manpower to actually enforce this. So it was kind of up to a police officer's discretion. And even in the height of the pandemic, I saw plenty of people who were not wearing masks, or at least if somebody made a fuss about it, they would put it on. But then when that person left, they would immediately take it off. Um, most people didn't do that, but I did see it. And then no one adhered 100% to social distancing protocols. Again, how are you going to enforce that? You know, I still maintain that the the most dangerous place you could have been during uh, COVID was the grocery store. And yet the grocery store was always packed. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of an issue that both the current Democrats and I would say even more left-leaning totalitarian governments have is that short of shooting dissenters, enforcement is a very difficult thing to do when you have laws that are so overreaching. For example, if you're not allowed to criticize the state, you rely on informants. And if people are not informing, you will not enforce those laws. 
fortunately for the former Soviet Union, there were plenty of informants. It's, it's estimated that one third of the entire population was informing on the other two thirds, including their mm -hmm. own immediate family. So over time, with enough deaths and executions and punishments being sent to gulags, they had a, at least as far as we can tell, they had a pretty decent um, enforcement. But I would wager to say that there were still a lot of naysayers out there, even within high-ranking members of the Communist Party. It's just you had to know who you could and couldn't trust. And I think there were a lot of quiet and whispered conversations during uh, the form in the former Soviet Union. Um, yeah, actually, that's one of the uh, terrifying correlations that I see today as people are becoming more and more comfortable with um, the socialism, communism coming to America, is if you look back, and this is the only one that I'm really familiar with, so I'll only speak on it, um, like the Hitler youth. And I mean, the idea that they were taking the children and they were indoctrinating them in the schools and we kind of see that going on today. Um, actually, uh, COVID has done an amazing thing that we never would have, we, we never even would have noticed this outside of the schools because the teachers were, um, were finding out that they were giving fake curriculums to the parents, like here's what we're teaching, but they're actually teaching something else. They're teaching um, whatever this ideology might be. I mean, in this case, it's like CRT and stuff like that. Um, which does really go into the whole idea of Marxism and how do you separate people in as many possible ways. And so um, what COVID did is it exposed all of that. And that is really terrifying stuff because in um, the Hitler youth or even just children in Germany at that time were informing on their parents. They were you know, going to school and saying, hey, my parents were doing this horrible thing. They're hiding this Jewish guy in the closet or whatever it might be. And I very much see that as, well, it's not talked about enough because I don't think a lot of people see it as indoctrination. I think they see it as, well, we're just sending our kids to school to get an education. And since they learned a lot of these um more leftist, more communist kind of ideologies in school themselves. And in fact, I did in school, although there was a lot less brainwashing when I was in school than what it sounds like there is today, although I have no definite comparison. Um, I was definitely uh, more leftist and I was definitely more in favor of things like communism and socialism when I was younger. And I broke free of that indoctrination, but I know that it exists and I know what it feels like. And it is very terrifying to look back and think, just like Jordan Peterson often says, would I have been the bad guy? Uh, and I suspect that that's quite a possibility that I would have been the bad guy had oh, I not broken that indoctrination. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I love, I love talking about that. Um, what Cody's referring to is kind of Peterson refers to it as uh, being a monster. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's kind of a more defined look at Carl Jung's theory of the shadow. Now Peterson takes it to a bit of a different place because Jung's concept of the shadow is more about uh, the individual, but Peterson builds on that and basically uses it as a tool to show you how an entire country 
can become basically the Nazis and how easy that is when you kind of really, really look at it. And basically the premise is, you know, and I, I believe this is the exercise he actually uses with his uh, classes when he when he teaches it, although he's been on teaching hiatus since 2018, but he's still a professor at University of Toronto. I got into an argument with somebody a while back and they were talking about how he was a failed academic. And I'm like, you know, we didn't get fired, right? Like, Hey, if that's doing, failure, I'll take failure yeah, in my life like, any day. I would, I would, I would <laughs> love to fail spectacularly the way Jordan Peterson did. <laughs> Um, but basically the premise is you ask yourself, you know, like if I was in Germany and obviously I looked German, like if you weren't a minority and you were in Germany, you were part of the, let's say 80 to 90%, um, would you have been a Nazi? Now, of course, today with our sensibilities, our first inclination to be like, no, I would never. But again, and Jordan Peterson doesn't use this, but my, the light bulb in my head went off immediately. It's like, oh, well. Here we go again. Sitzenleben. It hadn't happened before. Your life had been miserable because of the events leading up between World War One and World War Two, particularly in Germany. Your life sucked. And then here comes this guy who, no matter what you say, is extremely charismatic. He's saying things that resonate with people, whether they're true or not, is irrelevant in this case. You've got somebody to blame. And especially after this guy takes power and good things start happening, of course you would have been a Nazi. Like, you would not, statistically speaking, it is very unlikely. And there were people that were resisting the Nazis from day one. There were people in Germany who were doing that, but in the early days, most of them were killed, if not if not all. Um, there were more resistance springing up later on, but, I mean, even before Hitler was made chancellor... There were people, uh, the White Rose Society, I believe it was. It was a student group uh, who was speaking out against the Nazi party. But um, if memory serves, they were largely a, they certainly had communist sympathizers. I don't think they were a communist group, but communists and Nazis hated each other from day one. You know, that's the first uh, kind of. I don't want to say battles, but I'll, I'll use battles for lack of a better word. The first street battles were between, you know, communist groups and these far right fascist groups uh, that would later kind of coalesce and become the Nazi party. Um, but yeah, so basically in. To kind of wrap it up, the premise being that, like, no matter where you were, like if you had been in Germany, yeah, you probably would have been a Nazi if you lived in Soviet era Russia, you probably would have been a Bolshevik before too long. You would have fallen in line, statistically speaking. So before you get on your moral high horse and say, well, I would never do these terrible things, you got to really, really look at yourself. Because most of us don't, most of us won't speak up when we see something, you know, that's not good, but it might be fairly benign. We kind of just keep it to ourselves and let it happen and pretend like we don't see it. Very few of us will actually intervene in something that we know is maybe not a huge deal, but we know it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And then once that happens, you bent a little bit. And then when something really bad happens, I mean, you've already said yes. You've already been complacent. So, like, are you really going to stand up now? Because morally speaking, you're already bent. 
And that's why these movements tend to happen very, very slowly. Because I think inherently people know that you can't really break someone's morality like that. It has to be over time with a little bit here, just a little bit here. Yeah, that's, that's how, how cults, cults do it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think uh, um, an even <clears throat> more important question isn't would you have, but, but are you doing it now? So are you engaging in that in a behavior that will make you the bad guy according to the future when they look back and they say, how did this happen? And is that something that you're participating in presently? Again, more than likely. I, we'd all like to think not. We'd all like to think we're these, more, these paragons of moral virtue that just want what's best for the rest of the world. But I submit to you an argument against moral communism and that being, so I'll use the United States as an example, but you could apply this pretty much anywhere. So you could have the purest of intentions. You know, you want to make sure that no one uh, is starving in the U.S., and it's very easy to see the allure of something like communism. Or actually, I'll, I'll do one better. It's a little bit more, uh, I guess, prevalent today. You want to make sure that everyone has access to health care. Like, there is no reason, and this is a talking point, there is no reason why in the richest country in the world that anyone should die because they can't afford health care. And I agree with that sentiment. Honestly, I do. I don't think there is a valid reason why anyone should die because they cannot afford medicine or to see a doctor. Where I differ from most people is how we would go about changing that. So if you're arguing for communism, or even in this point, we'll talk about state-funded healthcare, we'll take a step back, not even full-blown communism, although it would, it would be pretty much the same. So what we said earlier, if the state if your rights come from the state, that means the state can take it away. That also means that the state can ration it. And we've actually seen this happen. And I, I apologize, I don't remember the I don't remember the name, but this happened in England. There was a baby, I believe his name was Charlie. I'm not even gonna try to remember, but you you can Google this. This actually happened and it just it, it infuriated me to no end. So England has a healthcare system called the National Institute of Health, and basically it is a state-funded and state-run healthcare system. Well, I'm going to say Charlie just because I think that's what his name was, but Charlie was born with a very, very um, rare and basically there's not a lot known about a condition, which would, it, it was going to result in a quick and painful death for the very, very poor child, and it was chronic, and there was no cure. We, we had virtually no information on it. The NIH cut funding off for Charlie's care because they essentially they wanted to stop pouring resources into what they deemed was a lost cause because they could not at this point with medical knowledge save his life. Well, the parents created a GoFundMe campaign and got, I believe, like well over a million dollars and offered to pay you know, for his care. The NIH denied them. They literally told them we are not going to expend more resources. So there were doctors in, I know the United States and I believe Switzerland, I could be wrong on the detail there, but I'll just use the United States doctors. There were doctors in the United States that offered to provide care for Charlie. Um, they just had to get him here. And the United Kingdom blocked their travel and would not let them leave the country. 
to get care. And of course, Charlie died. Now, here's the thing. I'm not I'm not a I'm not saying that he would have been saved had he come to America, but I mean, at least let him have a chance, you know. I mean, we're talking about a baby, a literal baby. I think it was a year old and three months when he died, if I remember correctly. But again, I encourage you to look up the story. You can probably Google like UK baby uh, denied healthcare or something that'll probably come up. But the point is the state said no. And because the state said no, the parents had no choice but to sit there and watch their child die and they couldn't do a damn thing about it. Now, here in the United States, you can harp on our shitty healthcare system all you want, but here, if parents have a child with a chronic illness and they cannot afford it and they set up a GoFundMe and get a million dollars, they can get that child into a hospital tomorrow, probably tonight. You know, and there are many doctors that would be more than happy to take a look at that case. You know, there are many doctors, and this is another thing the United States doesn't get enough credit for. There are tons of doctors here that would take that case pro bono to at least try. But the point is, it's uh, it's the decision of the doctor or the hospital to take that case. It's not up to the government whether or not that child receives care. And that is one of the many reasons why I am opposed to a state-funded single-payer healthcare system in the U.S., because... Even if the benefits are largely good, if a case like that can happen, I am 100% opposed to it. And rationing is just a byproduct of a single-payer system. It's seen in Canada all the time. You know, rationing of care. Now, I will give this caveat. Um, Rationing of medicine doesn't seem to be as big of a problem as it is here, particularly with insulin. But to say that insulin rationing does not happen is a lie because you can find plenty of articles of it happening in Canada. It just doesn't happen as as much as it does here. But again, here's the difference. Rationing in Canada is due to the government rationing the medicine. At least here, it's a choice that sucks, but it is in fact a choice. I mean, it's not much of a choice, I'll give you that, but again, I would much rather <laughs> I'd much rather have an unfortunate personal choice than I would have no choice of my own. The state has the choice. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to full-blown communism, I'm going to circle this back to Cuba now because we we didn't get off topic, but we got to talk about Cuba a little bit. It's in the title. Um, If the government can do that with healthcare and medicine, and if you have a full-blown communist regime, they can do that with food. Mm -hmm. They can do it with medicine 100%. They can do it with other resources. Like, let's say you're a farmer. You had to get your seed from the government. And let's just say the government, ah, we're, we're low on seeds, so we're just going to pick and choose who we give. What are you supposed to do? Like, you're basically state licensed to starve, really? Although, I guess that's not really fair because in the Soviet Union, you weren't allowed to eat any of your own crop. There were people that were caught picking seedlings off the ground after the crops had been taken, and that was a prison level offense that's um actually that's a pretty common uh thing there because that happened in mao's china that happened in north korea i mean that's a pretty standard thing is the 
the government become they they own everything so everything has to go through them which is a very inefficient process which is also why you see a lot of people dying when they could very easily grow food save themselves save their village so it looks like a lot of times they don't have enough resources or money or whatever to feed their people but they actually have plenty it's just it's a horribly inefficient system to take everything from somebody and then try to redistribute it. It just never works. Uh, you end up with not enough for the people who are actually doing the work. Well, and let's let's take that a step further and even look at it just from a thought experiment perspective. So let's say you have let let let's use Russia. It's a very big country. So let's say you know you you're in Soviet Russia and the system is literally. Uh, the state comes and picks up all the crops from the farmers. It gets taken to a central location where it is then redistributed to the people. Or you could just have the farmers distribute their own crop, which is what would happen in a capitalist system. They choose who and to who and for how much they want to sell their crop to. And the market makes sure that somebody's not going to have any unreasonable rates because if they do, no one's going to buy from them because there are enough people producing to where there is not scarcity and that drives prices down. Now, let's go back to Russia. Let's say that, I'm just gonna pick a random city. Let's say there's a grain uh, storage place in Minsk and let's say that it holds enough food to feed roughly a a million people. And let's say there's a freak accident where that storage facility gets struck by a bolt of lightning and goes up in flames. So that food that was set aside to feed a million people, even in the most benevolent society, if it was going to happen, you now have a billion people who are not going to eat now, or at least are going to eat less because of a freak accident, all because the distribution channel was way too complicated. Not even going into the immoral part of the state owning everything, including what you make, which ironically enough, I thought in the Communist Manifesto, uh, the individual owns his or her labor. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually that that is kind of an interesting point that you bring up there. <laughs> but it's a geographical redundancy. And so the more farmers that you have out there, but this is another argument that I've heard related to that is if I'm a farmer, and I don't get to keep anything that I grow. I have very little motivation to work hard to grow stuff. I'm just going to kind of half-ass it and, you know, I'll throw a few seeds in the ground here and there, but I'm not really going to go out of my way to do a good job. Whereas in a capitalist system, I have all of this incentive to get the most out of my land, to um, be a good steward of my land, to to make sure that next year's crops are going to be good because I know that that's how I'm going to take care of my family. But if my family's going to die anyways, well, you guys are getting the middle finger. I, I'm going to do as little work as possible. Well, and well, again, we'll even make that less sinister. So the difference between a capitalist and a, I, don't, I want to get off farming because it's not. So let's let's use the example of a factory worker who works in a furniture factory that makes chairs. Um, in a capitalist society, and the criticism of capitalism would say, well, you know, this man is putting all this labor into this chair and he gets nothing out of it other than his pitiful slave wage, which let's not even go into that. Um, but let's look at this from another perspective. You know, in that capitalist society, yes, he's 
being paid. Let's even say he's being paid a measly wage. Like, let's say it's not really worth his craftsmanship, but consider this. He also does not have to supply the materials, the location, you know, the, the, the finishing, the, risk. the tools, the risk to make all of these chairs. He's also not the only one making these chairs. So many, many, many chairs are being produced out of this one factory because of many, many, many workers. And since they have no skin in the game other than their time, I would think we could all at least partially agree that they should not get as much of the money as the person or people who have taken all the financial risk and provided the location, bought the land, built the building, or rented the building in some cases, provided all of the machinery, the tools, the material, all this, that, and the other. I think only a fool would say that the individual worker deserves as much as the person or people at the top who have assumed all the financial risk because the only risk of the worker is if the place goes under, they just need to find another job. If a large scale business like that goes under, the owners could be destitute. Well, even from, even in this scenario, um, I know that the communist manifesto would say, well, you're exploiting the workers. Well, if I'm a business owner, yeah, I could exploit my workers, but then who's going to want to work for me? Only people, you know, like I could pay them the least amount possible, but then I'm going to get crappy workers. That's not going to be good for my business. Uh, people are going to leave all the time. So then I have to go through all the cost of finding people, retraining people, um, all of that. So it's not in my best interest to exploit my workers. I know there's some ways that you can get away with it, whatever. But um, fortunately, in a capitalist society, people can leave those jobs and go improve their skills and go somewhere else. But just in general, if I want my business to be a good business, then I'm going to take good care of my workers, which in, again, a capitalist, a communist society, there isn't that motivation to take care of people. So that goes back to your previous point of um, how it kind of contradicts itself. Well, I'm sure there are people in communist societies that are just unbelievably altruistic, but I, I, that's in the minority. I will give a caveat real quick to the communists out there. Um, you're 100% right by today's standards, but there was a time in America where I, I would argue the workers were being exploited. But you know what happened? People started talking about it. The word got out, yellow, German, blah, 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 yellow journalism, the muckrakers which led to workers going on strike and demanding better conditions. And when they all did that, guess what happened? And then that became the norm. Now, it's not perfect and it's painful, but I would still say it's more ideal because there is at least the possibility of worker integrity in a, in, in a capitalist society, whereas in a communist society, you raise hell on a factory floor in a communist society, you're likely to just be taken out and shot. At not least, you'd be sent to a gulag. You know, there, there's no such thing. And let's compare this even more. You don't get to redress grievances in a communist society. You take what the state gives you and you are happy with it. You smile. So before you, before a person really hardcore criticizes, you know, the society we live in today, ironically on their iPhone or their laptop, probably sitting in a Starbucks, um, 
really take a look at the comparison and really ask yourself which one's more ideal. Because I will be the first to admit, neither was perfect. Neither is absolutely perfect. But I will take a chance of making my own way versus doing whatever the state tells me and be damned if I want to do it or not. I'll, I'll take that choice every single time. Because at least in a capitalist society, if I fail, it's probably my fault. I was talking to somebody about uh, communism and I brought up the point that it's failed every time it's been tried. And they said that in a perfect world, communism would work perfectly. And I actually couldn't disagree with them because it's true. If you had um, people who were equally motivated, people um, who had the same ideology, if people were... Um, incredibly homogenous, then you could get away with communism, but it would require the buy-in of basically everybody. Otherwise, it always leads to um, someone not wanting to participate in it in whatever fashion. So in a perfect world, communism actually sounds wonderful. You know, everyone is taken care of. Everyone has their their place in society, everyone has something to do, everyone, you know, is equal. And yeah, it sounds lovely. But unfortunately, it goes against absolutely everything we are um, psychologically and biologically programmed for. A communist society outside of that, that perfect world would not survive. And I mean that even like in the animal, in the animal kingdom, sure, you could have a small pocket of animals or um, pre-humans, whatever they might be, that it, uh, maybe they developed some type of communism. Well, it wouldn't take very long for something to come from the outside, that external influence to completely disrupt that and honestly probably destroy them. Yeah, and to your point, you know what else works in a perfect world? Capitalism. <laughs> because point. capitalism, with its flaws, yes, capitalism has some flaws, but here's the difference. Capitalism also works, for the most part, in a, the process works in an imperfect world. Because, mm -hmm. again, in perfect capitalism, everybody would be altruistic but still be seeking profit, and there would be gold flowing in the street and everyone would have everything they could ever want and or need. Everybody would have that giant flat screen TV, drive whatever the hell car they wanted. But the difference is the world isn't perfect. And like you accurately pointed out, whenever communism is tried, it eventually fails. It might have a good run for a little while, at least on paper, but somebody's always suffering guaranteed because the first step in communism is to create a homogenous society, like you said. So you have to get rid of the outliers and you certainly have to get rid of the former oppressor oppressors that you revolutionized against in the first place. So immediately at the start of communism, there is death in some way, shape or form. But in the imperfect world that we live in, the fact of the matter is no economic system has lifted more people out of poverty than capitalism. That's just a fact. And it's an irrefutable, indisputable fact. There are tons of UN reports on this. Uh, there, I mean, just look around you. Let Let's look at this specifically. So, when did when did the cell phone 
like get invented um, roughly like the modern smartphone is 2007 well, i'm even talking about the first one like the giant bricks like what oh, late 80s i think yeah but, well no actually it might go back even further than that but with let's any say, popularity say, the 80s let's say 1980 because it still works for the example and probably works a little bit better so 1980 was roughly 40 years ago in 40 years we went from that phone that looks like a brick that probably works 10% of the time to this thing that some of you are watching this live broadcasting from in 40 years. Didn't happen in communism. It happened in a capitalist society and it changed the world 100%. And most of the breakthroughs, uh, came as a result of either necessity from war or from capitalist ventures. I mean, that's just a fact because in peacetime, how many breakthroughs were there really that came out of communist countries? And hey, if you lived in one and you've got some info for me, feel free to share it. But I would make the case that capitalism just breeds that innovation because there's an incentive to do so because it adheres, it adheres to human nature to want to buy and own things. Yeah, and also, well, um, capitalism is a self-correcting system. So as you brought up with the revolts of the workers, um, but also people are not equal. Uh, there are people that I am smarter than, and there are people that I am less intelligent than. And there are people with greater physical ability than me and lesser physical ability than me. So what do we do about that? Like a, a communist system doesn't really account for that. There's, um, I mean, it tries to, but what are you going to do? Cut the heads off of all the, the grain that grows too tall? Like how do you handle that situation in communism if you, because it, that is another imperfection that's added to the, the system that, makes it an imperfect system, an imperfect world. So how do you account for that in communism, even if um, you want to give it the benefit of the doubt? Right. It's a flaw. It's inherently flawed from the beginning, because like you said, and then here's the other part of that, tying back into the monster, because we were talking about Nazis. Well, and I believe Jordan Peterson said this to some extent, in some way, shape or form, when he was talking about communism, particularly the former Soviet Union, is what exactly makes you think that you would be so, you know, righteous and pure that if you were put in charge of the lives of everyone in an entire country that you wouldn't almost immediately turn into a power-hungry maniac? Because let's let's really look at this. So I'm going to use it. I'm going to I'm going to dog on men real quick because we're probably. I'll be honest. We'd probably be corrupted the fastest. Um, so you take an average, let's take an average man. Let's say he's 40. He's put in charge of an entire country where he can literally do whatever he wants. How, how long do you think it's going to take him to institute prima nocta? Oh yeah. Which isn't, which isn't, I, I'm, which isn't a historically real thing, but I mean, could be, you know, how long is it going to take for him to make sure that he gets his, you know, uh, 
very expensive crab imported in from the coast, make sure that takes precedence over the grain for everybody else because that happens. Um, anybody who says, hey, man, your mustache looks funny. You should really shave that thing. How long is it going to take for that egomaniac? Because, again, it's unchecked and he doesn't have to learn how to swallow his pride because he can just have somebody killed for saying that his mustache looks goofy. Or how long is it going to take for him to make an advance to a woman that he uh, finds attractive and she's not interested and has the guts to tell him no? You think that's going to work out well for her in that kind of a society? You know, it, it's only a matter of time and it's not going to take very long. I think we can see that. Well, how long does it take for any of us to become evil? So, um, we might say like with the, the healthcare example, so we want healthcare for everyone. That's a, that's a, a kindness, a loving thing that we want for everyone. But if you disagree about on that topic, then you must want to see people die. And if you want to see people die, that must make you a bad person. And if you're a bad person, then I should be able to somehow end your life and cancel you, whatever it might be. Because cancel culture is not really a new thing. That has taken place in uh, as these uh, regimes, the Nazis, the, the Red Guard, the, whoever they might be, all played uh, some game of cancel culture. And so... Like even um, nowadays, what we have is uh, the the most horrifying phrase that has come up nowadays throughout that uh, year of protests that we saw is silence is violence. That is the phrase that we should be the absolute most terrified by because that essentially says that if you don't 100% agree, not just agree, but participate in what I want you to participate in, then you are causing violence by your non-participation. And therefore, you are someone that I can attack violently because you are an evil person. That is like the most twisted, scary logic that we could ever possibly run into. Yeah, it's the ultimate preemptive strike. It's a very, very... Uh convenient us against them device that they are uh, using to full effect at the moment. Um, but I'm going to tie this back to Cuba because I do want to make some caveats because yeah, I know <laughs> we put Cuba, 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 no Cuba, Cuba was the, uh, the, the uh, catalyst for this discussion because in essence, we are having a debate on communism here, but going specifically to Cuba, um, there are some caveats that I will make, um, not necessarily to the Communist Party in Cuba, but just kind of how they got there. It's understandable to a point, because what you have to understand, I'm not going to go into the long, drawn-out history, but there was a lot of bullshit that was uh, thrust upon the Cuban people, not least of which from the United States, Um Spain in the earlier days, but the U.S. didn't give them any room to breathe once they got their independence. We were pretty much right there um, to basically exploit the island of Cuba. But again, we have to look at the Zitz and Laban. Those Americans that were in power then are not the Americans of today. Um, I think most people, particularly apparently those that live in Florida, um, would welcome 
Cuban refugees with open arms. But again, I'm neither a Cuban nor a Floridian, so I can't speak for them. But actually, uh, Sosa said at the beginning of the podcast, he just said, let them all in. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are, they are right there. But yeah, I'm, I'm actually really proud of my fellow Americans down in Florida, the ones that kind of, there was an armada of boats that were trying to get supplies to Cuba. Unfortunately, I think they have to stay 12 miles off the island to stay in uh, U.S. or at least um, open water. So I'm not sure how that mission is going, but at least they're trying. So I will definitely give credit where credit is due. Um, so I guess kind well, of... Actually, bring- sorry, before you continue, that's something really important is um, communism forces generosity um, from people. When people are not forced to be generous, they're more generous than when they're forced to be generous. Sorry, but that oh no, one hundred percent right. What I, I forget who said it, but or maybe nobody said it. Maybe I just thought it. So if you know who said it, enlighten me. Uh, morality comes from within. You know, a truly moral person. It's actually it's, wow. This is really off topic, but it illustrates my point. Uh, did you see the original X Men with Ian McKellen, uh, Hugh Jackman, all of them? Mm-hmm. So the line that gets me every time is when Magneto's explaining his grand plan and how he's going to deliver all mutants from the uh, bigotry of humanity. Wolverine just kind of looks at me. He's like, if you were really so self-righteous, it would be you in that thing. You know, and that, that rings true because if you force someone else to give someone something, you're not moral, you're a tyrant. Mm-hmm. And a bad one at that. Um, but if you sacrifice on your own, from your own, you know, that's morally praiseworthy. But the minute it's a requirement, even the moral praise comes out of it. Even if you want to, like even if you want to pay higher taxes to go to universal health care, you have taken away the ability for that individual to be moral about it because it's no longer a choice. Right. And that's a very, very, very important distinction. It all comes down to choice, and the Cuban people do not have it, unfortunately, at this time. Um, So in your opinion, do you think this might actually breed some change, or do you think it's going to go back to status quo? Um, There have been some things in the news recently that kind of changed my mind because I would have originally thought that it would just all get swept under the rug and it would just go back to normal status quo. Um, But Biden and Saki were both forced to admonish communism publicly. And it, they took some time doing it. They, they were very reluctant to do it but they both did it. And I don't know how much the media is really going to show that. Like if we're only seeing that um, looking at independent or right-wing media, but if that gets out more, then that would be a big change because it would either force people to hate the democratic party because they don't like communism or for them to um, have kind of a wake up and say, wait, uh, what's going on? Like, why are these people out, out here shouting liberty and, wearing, uh, and uh, waving American flags? Like, is communism actually bad? And so 
I, I don't know. It's too, it's really too soon to predict it. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, to me, my, my cynical side thinks that I'm afraid that this is what's going to happen. I'm afraid that what's going to happen is they're just going to lift the embargo, which will give some immediate relief because I'm, I'm not going to lie. The embargo, the trade embargo from the United States is a big reason why, um, Cuba is having trouble getting more resources, but it is not the root of the problem. Um, now, if they lift the embargo again, I think this will all, at least for the moment, kind of dissipate. Because what sparked this was a, yet another lack of resources and inflation that the government just can't supply. Um, the embargo would stop that in the immediacy. And a lot of this has to do is a lot of the immediate reasons are tied with lack of available resources and the inflation is actually tied to the Venezuelan uh, oil prices going way down and them being unable to sustain their own and inability to export to other countries like Cuba. Um, it's all a bunch of little problems, but at the root of all of them is because they are communists because in a capitalist society, people can adapt, you know, people can move to a different industry. People can change, people can lower prices, people can, uh, even form cooperatives mm -hmm. and kind of share the burden that's happened before in history too, but that requires freedom of choice. And right now there is no freedom of choice. So the root of it is rooted in the fact that the communist regime is not providing uh, resources or choice to its citizens. And it's, this is a really hard, hard call because on the one hand, there is a human cost to keeping the embargo. So I can see why, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's a bad decision if the Biden administration were to lift the embargo. I actually think from a humanitarian perspective, that would be a good thing. The only unfortunate side effect of that was would be, I think, that the communist regime would be able to recover and, see, and be able to actually say, look, look what we did for you. We got the United States to lift the embargo. Isn't communism great? And then Cuba goes through another 50 years or so before something else causes, you know, unrest. And then we go through the same song and dance all over again. Yeah, if a child doesn't have consequences for their actions, they remain a child. And that's very much what we would see here. So if communism doesn't have consequences for what it does, then it remains a child, so to speak. And that's a, that that's a that's a tricky place, morally speaking, that doesn't get talked about a lot is things like sanctions and embargoes, because there is a human cost to that. But these are things that countries and governments can use to uh, influence the powerful. The only problem is, is that the powerful are affected by these things dead last. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the common people feel the brunt of it first. So. And I'm not justifying the use of embargoes or blockades or anything like that. It's just, it's a fact that these exist and have been used and will still be used in the years to come. And it's unfortunate because like I said, there is a very high human cost to it, but they have historically been effective. I mean, heck to this day, Gaza, Israel still has a blockade uh, around Gaza. And again, it's, that's another tricky one. It's it's very unfortunate because the people in Gaza would benefit immensely from those ports being open, but so would the terrorists that run the Gaza Strip because they would be able to import weapons. So it's tricky. And I totally see 
objectively see both sides from a certain perspective, we have a commentator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. I suspect we might see the embargo lifted again, because if you remember, I don't remember if the entire embargo was lifted under Obama or if it was just some restrictions were let up. Well, but, which is more kind to the people? Because, um, like, I want to be kind to people. Uh, it makes me feel good, so I want to do that. So which is more kind in the grand scheme of things, to lift the embargo or to leave it in place? Here's the other, here's the other part of that is it depends on your timeline. If you're talking immediate, like what would give almost immediate relief to the people of Cuba, it would be lifting the embargo because here's mm -hmm. the drawback to switching from communism to capitalism is it takes time. It takes a lot of time. Now, there are some people that would see immediate benefits, but most of the people probably wouldn't start to see, oh, and I'm totally spitballing here, but like at the very least five to 10 years, probably longer before you saw any real significant improvement in life. Because the again, these things take time. And you mm -hmm. also have to kind of, if people have grown up and their parents grew up and their grandparents grew up in a regime or in a society where the rules were different, they have to adjust to the new rules. Now, all of a sudden, you actually have to get up and go to work if you want food on the table. And as silly as it sounds to us, they may or may not because they're a lot of these people are used to being told where to be and when and that's all they have to do to get their food but to actually have to show up and produce and that is what your pay is based on it's going to take some time to adjust for sure now i think long term as a society they would be better off but in the immediate it would actually be quite painful so it kind of depends do you want to give immediate relief I, I think the best way to transition, honestly, from communism to capitalism, and this is this is going to piss off both sides, I think what China started to do is kind of the best way to go about it. The problem with what they did where they slowly open up capitalist markets, like they opened up the Chinese stock exchange and a lot of people got rich, but a lot of people couldn't participate. So you create instant inequality, which kind of feeds into the communist mythos of, you know, the haves and the have nots. But I think, honestly, in terms of a transition, that's probably the best way to do it is to slowly introduce free markets just to get people used to it. But unfortunately, then you have to hold on to that whole communist mentality. So that's tough. It's tough to say. But if it were easy, we wouldn't be having the conversation, I suppose. Right. Yeah, and um, Yanmi Park, uh, she... She brings up a, a really good um, point in that People like in North Korea, and same thing would be true in Cuba. They, they, it's it, it's not within their paradigm to understand capitalism. I, I mean, I suppose at some level they probably have uh, black markets and things like that. So at some base level, they probably do understand the idea of barter and all of that kind of stuff, but. To do it on a broader, like um, out in the open, I think it would take a little bit of time. Um, I, I'd i be a little more generous and say that it would probably only take a couple or a few years um, for things to really turn around. But 
I could be completely wrong too because I'm also it's, spitballing. It's, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough to predict the future too. Because well, okay, so and we're also forgetting the possibility that there might be a ton of Cubans residing in America that if the country opened up and was free, they would happily go back and they can kind of help the transition because they've been exposed oh, to yeah. it. They understand how it works. So yeah, if, if that were to happen, I would definitely think. Now I can definitely see why some Cuban people, particularly very much older Cubans, might be wary of aid from someone like the U.S., which I think the U.S. in that event happening should give aid, but very, very indirect aid, meaning like, yeah, we drop off supplies, but I don't think in, in the case of Cuba specifically, just because of the history, I think the United States should and probably would be very hesitant and like getting involved directly in government, like kind of like a, hey, if you ask us, we'll give you some advice, but we're not really keen to like put people on the ground and advise you how to run your government like we'll answer questions but we're not going to do it for you which who and am i kidding the government the u.s would never do that but what happens if we were to start uh, dropping off supplies so there's bigger implications to that too so would the government come in and take those supplies and we still have the same problem of uh, the government uh, uh, distributing those um, would we end up in a situation with overlords where uh, there's certain people who know where the drops are going to be or um, find out and beat people up and take the stuff and then sell it? Um, so what are the, would that actually, again, would that be a kindness to go in and do that? I mean, these these are so tough. It's like, you know, how are you kind and how are you you cruel? Well, and again, with every kind of action, there's usually some unintended consequences, but we actually know the answer to the question you just asked, or at least one possible one. It happened in Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory, and the supplies for hurricane relief were dropped off and were either uh, taken and then sold or distributed under questionable means, or they were just not distributed and sat on the tarmac for, I believe, three months for some mm -hmm. shipments like and Puerto Rico is not that big you you would think distribution on an island the size of Puerto Rico would be fairly easy but of course you had rampant corruption and this all came out and was somehow still blamed on Donald Trump but yeah I think I think you're right I think it, it, it wouldn't be so easy but I can definitely see I guess my point was I can see how there might be some some raised eyebrows if Cuba all of a sudden became, uh, you know, non-communist country and the United States just kind of swooped in to, quote, save the day, because this has already happened before and Cuba did not benefit. Well, some people in Cuba benefited immensely from it, but for the most part, largely the country was exploited, which, again, I don't think we would do it, certainly not to the same degree, but I also, the United States has gotten a little too cozy with the idea of nation building that we kind of just can't seem to help ourselves. So, yeah, yeah, that's that whole nation building thing is another, it's another one of those traps. It's like you're going to have an unintended consequence and to always simplify this and I guess to um, get myself to think along those lines more when I think about kindness, I think about feeding the squirrels in, you know, like in the backyard. Well, if you feed those squirrels too much, then they become dependent on that food that you're giving them and they lose a lot of their skills to go out and do that. So 
I'm not saying that these nations, um, you know, would necessarily become dependent on the food, but they would certainly, that would be their, their, their new paradigm would be getting food, getting aid, getting whatever from the United States, as opposed to going out and building things for themselves. And so that puts them not in a free position, but just under the control or under the thumb of a new government. Right, right. And it's, it's so tricky. It's really hard. I'd almost, actually, no, I'm not going to go into that because I was going to say what I would almost like to see is, um, yeah, I'm not going to go into that. I'll be called a colonizer if I go into that. <laughs> I, I can I can share it with you via text message later, but yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into that. Oh well, that's okay. Um, I will save you, and I will say that I um, honestly believe that for long term purposes, the best form of government is a monarchy. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and I believe that because the the monarch number one doesn't want to die. But number two wants to be a good steward of what they're going to pass along to their children. And so long term, a monarchy ends up being the best. Um, it's kind of like a um, there's a lot of couples that will decide that either the man or the woman will have the, the very the um, if there's a disagreement that they're the one who get to uh, to settle it with whatever their opinion is. And a monarchy would very much be like that. So it would avoid a lot of conflict. Oh. <laughs> look, look up how Tsar Nicholas II ran the country and tell me if you still think monarchy is the way to go. I, I am not familiar with that. And I know that it has uh, some potential problems, but um, I think for the most part, a king or a queen would want to not be a jerk <laughs> well but it, it goes kind of into like in a perfect world because in a perfect world there's a reason why we have uh the the archetype of the wise king the wise benevolent king you yeah. know there, there's a reason but we also have the archetype of the the mad king the corrupt king the evil king mm -hmm. so i'd say you're you're at a 50 50 split on that one but again, the problem with monarchy is the lack of choice. Now, if a monarchy willingly gives up their power, are they really still a monarchy, though? And there was a there was a very long time throughout history when uh, the idea of a monarchy or of a monarch, excuse me, was the best option. It seemed to be the most logical choice that one person and Plato would agree with you. Now, Plato wasn't necessarily keen on one uh, person, although I doubt he would be opposed to one philosopher king, but he certainly saw the, uh, the, the, the perceived benefit of there being an elite class of people who were above the baser uh, wants and needs of, you know, I guess, I guess the proletariat, for lack of a better word, which, I mean, I guess you could classify that as bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, the difference in Plato's example is that the bourgeoisie in this case were, again, they were above one of his requirements was they would be required to live in sparse public housing. But again, how long is that really going to last when the, when the ruling elites can basically enact whatever laws they want? Now, all of a sudden, instead of public housing, 
you know, every every member of the ruling class gets his own uh, mansion villa. And it is required for the, uh, the the peasants to wait on them hand and foot. Like, it's only a matter of time before that happens. Mm-hmm. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it all depends on, yeah, it depends on the person, I suppose. Yeah. Because there, there are some who would look further into the future and say, if I treat these people poorly, they're going to come and break down my uh, my doors, the doors to my castle one day and kill me. But um, I don't want to go too far off into that. Um, what I one thing that I am curious about is the the mentality of people who uh, can watch what's happening in Cuba or uh, Venezuela or uh, any of these uh, historical takeovers of communism or problems with communism and can still believe that it's a good idea. So um, Yuri Bezmenov, he speaks really, uh, God, that guy's so interesting to listen to, but um, he talks about, once the brainwashing and the demoralization um, and the ideologies are firmly set in people, you can show them the truth and they won't see it. It'll be right in front of them and they can't see it. And this always makes me think of um, sci-fi movies where somebody's been brainwashed and they're your friend. And in our case, um, like communism coming here, we'll say, um, there are there are countrymen, and they've been brainwashed. We can see that they've been brainwashed. They're trying to uh, destroy the ship. They're trying to put a hole in the hull, and it's going to kill us all. So we can't let them do it. But what do we do? Do we we don't want to kill our friend? Um, and I it's, we were talking about the Avengers that came up earlier. Um, Black Widow actually handled it perfectly when Hawkeye uh, was brainwashed. As soon as she noticed he was brainwashed, she kicked his ass. Like right. she she didn't wait to find out. Like we see in a lot of uh, sci-fi movies where we don't want to admit that the person's brainwashed. We think, oh, I can still help them. There's still hope for them. Um, maybe I can just talk to them. Maybe I can um, bring them back to my side. Maybe they're not, they got to still be in there somewhere. And that I think is the feeling that a lot of us have watching people support the idea of implementing communism. So how do we, how do we react to those people and how, or can we really uh, on a grander scale um, break that brainwashing that they have. So, wow, I'm really glad you phrased that that way because I can totally bring uh, nerd into this and still illustrate a pretty good point quite well. So you talked about brainwashing, but what happens when the character or person in question actually comes to believe this of their own volition? And I will use the example of Anakin Skywalker. In Revenge of the Sith, because he was not brainwashed, but what happened to him, and this is why that postmodernist notion of um, basically all all of reality being subjective to a certain extent is actually pretty dangerous. Because let's look at let's look at Anakin as an example. You know, he was uh, raised in the Jedi Order since he was young, not as young as he should have been because he didn't get the full indoctrination. 
which, mm-hmm. you know, that that's another point. So Anakin was able to think for himself. So particularly by his own perception, he came to this as his, of his own volition. He came to this conclusion himself. We know as the viewer, because the viewer is omniscient, that this was all manipulated by the, the soon-to-be Emperor Palpatine. But for Anakin's per- perception, he came to this conclusion. He saw the world had become corrupt, and even those that he loved and cared for had turned their backs on the truth and thus had to be eliminated. That is why that subjective reality is so dangerous. And unfortunately, that is part and parcel of the uh, modern kind of leftist mentality Postmodernism is at the root of that, and that's why it's dangerous, because everyone can, in fact, live their truth, and I hate that phrase, because um, one of my favorite philosophers, Averroes, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Averroes, however you want to pronounce it, his kind of mantra was, two truths cannot contradict one another. That flies in the face of postmodernism, but that's how you can have people say things to the effect of, you know, like... um, um, Well, I don't want to bring transgenderism into this, but I can't think of another option. That's how you can have somebody that was born a certain sex say that they are not that sex. And that's how you can have people who I will admit are in the minority. But you have I I saw a video, um, I think it was two weeks ago. uh, You have a transgender couple. So a transgender man and a transgender woman where the transgender woman is trying to breastfeed their newborn baby that the transgender man delivered and did not even know that they were pregnant. And they are expressing disappointment because the baby is latching, but they are not lactating. This is lunacy. This is yeah. not real. This is, But it, that, that perception of truth has become so ingrained in the movement and the ideology that you literally have a person who is ignoring human biology or hell mammalian biology which is i'm going to go on at least millions of years old at least well i at least 60 million years old mm-hmm. and all of a sudden just because they believe something that the biology is no longer true the fact of the matter is is that bio, biologically born biologically born males by and large there might be a freak of nature out there somewhere but that's the exception not the rule do not have milk glands and therefore cannot lactate. It is not possible. So to bring this back to Anakin, because we got off on a bit of a tangent there. I'll, I'll go off on another tangent talking about Cuba. Um, che Guevara, who is this big hero to the left now, ask, ask, uh, ask anybody who you know, may have been alive during the Cuban Revolution uh, how Che felt about the gay community. About what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. About how Che Guevara would feel about, or how Che Guevara felt about the gay community, or how he would feel about something like that. Yeah, Yeah, Google that one too. It's hard to find, I will give you that, because I even tried. It's not readily available. It's out there, but you have to hunt for it. Uh, I'll give it. Spoiler alert, uh, concentration camps. If not outright firing squads or executions, but, you know, but he's a hero to the left. Um, going back to Anakin now, that pathology and that ideology became so, and it it was patently false because again, us as the omniscient viewer, 
knows that all of this manipulation and lying was going on from the very beginning, even before Anakin became involved in the story. He just became a pawn at a certain point. But Anakin doesn't know that, but his inability to see it, even when the man who trained him, taught him everything he knew, loved him like a brother, would die for him, is trying to tell him, listen, you're being lied to. This is not what you believe is patently false, but it had become so ingrained because it's what he wanted reality to be, ironically, because it made him miserable, which humans have a particularly gift, a particularly good gift for that, that he could not see the truth, even though it was presented to him right in front of his face. Well, um, the transgender thing, I try not to bring it up as the transgender thing a lot of times because um, it is so uh, directly a hot button issue, but it is about um, people reinforcing, uh, and this is all about postmodernism. It's reinforcing somebody's reality for them in order to believe that you're being kind to them. And so... I think that, well, okay, so the, the example I like to use is, say you come across someone who has a knife and they're cutting bugs out of their skin. They're sure that there's bugs in there, and so they're, they're cutting them out. And there's a few things that you can do when you encounter this person. And what we're doing nowadays is we're walking up to them and we're saying, hey, man, uh, you missed one. Like, that's what we're doing to people nowadays. So this, this um, objective reality <clears throat> is being completely lost. And instead, this uh, subjective reality is being reinforced to people, which is really dangerous because when we think about things as habit, so when I get in the habit of believing insane things, it's easier for me to believe another insane thing. And that's no comment on the transgender community. That's just saying how this progresses. And so a lot of times we can end up with, I see somebody cutting bugs out of their skin and I decide, well, that's, that's their reality. So maybe um, the best thing that I can do for them in, is really help reinforce the reality by joining in the reality. So now I start cutting bugs out of my skin. And then you come along and you're like, well, there's two guys doing this. Maybe, maybe I have bugs in my skin too. Maybe I need to cut them out as well. And so it it. Not, it not only <clears throat> causes you to um, to do it more habitually and to find other things to do it with, but it also brings other people in. And you have more and more people believing crazy things. And the more cognitive dissonance we have, the the unhappier and more angry we are in our lives. And that's exactly what you're talking about with the not believing or trying to believe two things at once that, that counter each other. That's cognitive dissonance. And so looking, looking at, the, at people the people who are the least happy and have the most mental problems in our society, they tend to be 
on the political left, and they tend to be people who would support things like communism and uh, the subjective reality. Right, and I'll, I'll take that a step further and kind of not contradict you, but kind of add to it. And this is why it's really scary. So I'll use your example, the man cutting bugs out of his skin. And this is uh, fans of Karl Popper, Karl Popper are gonna love this. Um, it would also be wrong to assume right out of the gate that this man is not in fact cutting bugs out of his skin. As an individual, you are completely ignorant. You, There's a bug that actually exists, uh, chiggers. I don't know if they call them that down in Texas, but it mm -hmm. is a just a tiny little bug that gets embedded in your skin and it is agonizing. I wouldn't recommend cutting them out, but I mean, uh, there there's a precedent in reality. So if you come across this man and you're almost wrong in either case, if you just believe them out of context or if you say that they're crazy out of context, because let's say hypothetically that he's in fact not crazy and that there are tiny bugs in his arm or whatever that he's trying to cut them out. Now, the reason that's scary is because this can become a pathology in either way because you can either... It all depends on whether or not the bugs are real and society's reaction to them. Now, again, in a perfect world, what we should do is we take that case and we say, okay, we're going to get this gentleman to a hospital. We're going to get him stabilized, and then we're going to do some digging. We're going to investigate. We're not going to say whether or not up front that there are or aren't bugs. We're going to figure it out. If we find bugs, great. Now we know more, and we can move forward with the process. Or if we don't find any bugs, then we can kind of start uh, going down the path of maybe this gentleman is mentally ill or we can try to figure out what's going on. The problem is that requires time and it requires uh, being of a calmer mindset and not reactionary. And that's hard. That's very difficult. But that's also why we have people out here who believe that holding on to a rock will give you... Uh, increased cognitive ability or athletic ability you know it's easy to believe in a quick fix or um like you said what is going on with the crowd um and even worse i would say today if you find that man cutting bugs out of his arm and you're the one out of a hundred that's like maybe this dude's crazy i mean you're probably gonna get killed <laughs> in that instance because <laughs> right. you're like He's, he's not, he's not helping cut off the bugs. He, he wants us all to die. Well, yeah, that's also um, bringing up, well, this is a, a one-off case. So um, there is a very slim chance that you could potentially have bugs crawling in your skin. So therefore, and this is where we get to affirmative care that doctors are doing nowadays, if someone says they have bugs in their skin, we must believe that they have bugs in their skin. And that's the only possible explanation. Yeah, and frankly, I don't want a doctor that goes along with what I say, because if I go in with a headache and I say, oh yeah, I just have a migraine. I don't want him to be like, okay, here's some migraine medication. I want him to be like, well, let's run some tests. And he's going to find, uh, lo and behold, he might find an aneurysm in my frontal lobe and save my life. You know, that's the doctor I want. I want the doctor that looks me in the eye and says, you know, you also might be fucking crazy. Right. And then, yeah, going back to the brainwashing part of this and how people, um, 
get brainwashed and it's so hard to get them out of it and to bring them back into any kind of reality is black widow behaving properly in that scenario by saying this guy's messed up i don't care if he's my best friend i'm gonna beat the crap out of him (laughs) that depends on your perspective because on the one and this would be my moral stance too like uh in her mind, it's completely justified because she's like, okay, now I know there's something wrong with him. He's obviously being controlled. I am going to do him a service because he's probably being made to do things that he would not want to do or wouldn't do mm-hmm. if he was not being controlled. So in one way, it's an act of kindness. And of course, she's not killing him. She's incapacitating him so he can no longer do those things until they can get him under control. But she's still kicking her friend in the head. And maybe by some freak accident, she kicks him in the head and breaks his neck. You know, these are all risks that we take. Yeah. um, I will avoid talking about this one. Maybe we'll bring it up in another discussion. I'll text you about it and see if you want to talk about it on your channel. (laughs) So I'll save that one. But there there are some more things just like that where it's like... um, by just believing that people are the way they are, or the way they say they are, are we actually doing them a kindness or are we reinforcing a problem? So I'll, I'll bring that up with you later. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it is horrible watching people who can see all of these things that have happened and are happening within communism. And it just, it's like it doesn't even register in their brain that communism is the problem. And they can see all these great things that capitalism is doing. Like my favorite one is we all have dishwashers. Even poor people have this amazing device that does this work for them. What a luxury. And so that rising tide, it raises all the ships and they can see that happening around the world. But at the same time, they'll say capitalism, capitalism is evil. And it's like you just you you just want to beat the crap out of them and incapacitate them, so to speak, <laughs> and bring them try to bring them back to reality and say, hey, you know, we're we're your friends here. Uh, you know, we're we're all Americans and we all want the same thing. We can all be friends instead of um, the the separation that Marxism does and trying to tear us all apart so that we're ripe for something like communism. And I'll even take it to a more pessimistic view is like, you know, at best we're all friends and at worst, I really don't care how you wash your dishes, go nuts. You know, whether you use a dishwasher by hand and I guess I'll kind of, bring this to a close with another sci-fi example about the difference between uh, individual prerogative and basically the chain of command forcing someone to do something. The chain of events is the same. The only difference in this example is the motivation for doing so. Um, Are you a Star Trek fan by chance? Yes. Okay. So you've seen uh, The Wrath of Khan. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at the end... Yeah. At the at the end of the Wrath of Khan, though, the Enterprise is getting ready to blow up, or I, I don't remember the details, but Spock has to go down and basically uh, fix the problem. But in doing so, he exposes himself to lethal doses of radiation. And so not only is it a guaranteed death sentence, but he's guaranteed to die alone. 
Now, Spock's axiom in this example is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, which is just pure utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. Now, same exact situation, except Spock comes up with a way to fix the problem, and Kirk turns to him and says, okay, Spock, go do it. That's an order. The exact same course of action, the only difference is someone orders Spock to do it. That is now a murder. Yep. <laughs> it kind of encapsulates the difference between, I'm going to say, a communist government and a democratic, you know, free society. Not even just, uh, that doesn't really have much to do with capitalism or economics, but the axiom is still true. But who gets to make the call? And that's why I'm much more of a fan of Kantian uh, morality rather than pure utilitarianism. And to be fair, I think even utilitarians would agree that there are some instances where that philosophy uh, doesn't or shouldn't apply, i.e. the trolley problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Cuba. I, I hope you get I hope you get free. I really do. I think that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm a fan of freedom all around the world. Yep. North Korea too. <laughs> yeah, they're a they're a very uh, scary one there in North Korea. Um, I, that is about the most extreme example I think we could possibly imagine. I think they have uh, managed to uh, exceed all of our expectations. Yeah, from what I understand, though, they're kind of on borrowed time. Uh, thankfully, I just that reg that 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 regime is going to go down kicking and screaming, and I shudder to think of what consequences the people of North Korea will have to endure. Um, I foresee mass starvation in their future, even more so than now. And those of you that are interested that haven't heard of Yanmi Park, you should definitely check her out. Um, she's a North Korean uh, defector quite literally escaped um, on on foot twice, I might add. Not from North Korea, but she, uh, she crossed the North Korean border into China, was sold into slavery, and I believe it was three years later, she crossed the Gobi Desert on foot with a group of people into Mongolia and then was finally free. So I yeah, believe that was from... Not gloss over that part where she was sold into slavery yeah, in no, China. Yeah, no, most definitely not. Which is a, a huge thing that, that like... China is getting away with so much, and that is also terrifying that um, that we're putting restrictions on a little tiny country like Cuba, and we're letting China do whatever the hell they want. Well, that so is here's, terrifying. Here's the truly awful part about that is, um, so this actually does tie into the evil of communist, communism, although China specifically, China had the one the one-child policy for a very long time. And then they kind of figured out that if everybody only has boys, it kind of stops the whole procreating thing. Um, so China has a shortage of women. I believe the ratio is somewhere around 50 to 1, which is ridiculous. And I would like to point out that under Chinese law, slavery is illegal. However, they're obviously looking the other way because it is... An I saw the numbers, and I, I mean, it's just ungodly from North Korea alone, let alone what's probably coming in from Eastern Europe and, you know, less uh, scrupulous areas. Um, so, yeah, for those of you in the United States that are complaining about, quote, unquote, slave wages, 
there is actual slavery still going on and it's much more prevalent than you think it is. Yeah, that is, um, I had a whole bunch of uh, clothes with a Nike logo on them that I will not be wearing anymore. <laughs> um, I'll be getting rid of those. <laughs> well, Yongmi Park, Yongmi Park actually says that the Chinese Communist Party is uh, not the sole blame, but one of the primary uh, reasons uh, that caused the slavery trade in China because they are they created the problem, which is why uh, women are just trafficked at unbelievable levels into China uh, to be sold as basically wives for the men that can't just numerically find a wife. Um, and they created that problem that created that black market. And now not only did they create it, but they're actually looking the other way because they know they screwed up. Yeah. So ironically, they're letting a capitalist process, which is abhorrent and is not indicative of capitalism, I would argue, but they're, they're letting a, basically a, a market force solve a problem created by a communist regime. Mm -hmm. and completely looking the other way. Yeah. Well, I think we should end on this high note. And... <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That got dark real quick. <laughs> and we will absolutely do this again. So I will talk to you again soon. All righty. Yeah, great. Let's just end on that positive note. Uh, go capitalism. Right. <laughs> All right. Everybody. I'll see you.